Gig Gab, the Working Musicians Podcast, episode 202. No, I have that backwards. 202. I love palindromes. For Monday, February 25th, 2019. And welcome to Gig Gab, the podcast, you know, BFA, by, for, and about musicians and gigging musicians and you, whoever you are. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Las Gatas, California, it's Paul Kent. How goes, uh, how goes your Monday so far, Mr. Kent? My Monday's going just fine. I actually I have something cool to start this episode with. Are you ready? I, I am totally ready. Those of us who have the good fortune of knowing you and meeting you become what uh, I would uh, quietly call Hamilton heads, just big fans of someone who combines nerdery, you know, technical precision and being a good guy in one package. And we actually got a note from a from a Hamilton head that's out there. And I want to read it to you. Cool. Okay. yeah, sure. Dave and Paul, happy four year anniversary. 200 plus episodes is a nice achievement for two guys who are basically hanging out. And talking about all things music. I'm a frequent writer to your show and I appreciate you taking my emails and discussing them. I'm certain I can speak for many other listeners when I say that we find your input and discussions very valuable. I wanted to drop a little line of thank you for letting me be a fly on the wall. Additionally, I want to thank Dave for sharing all the stories about theater gigs. I've always loved theater and never considered being a part of it until I heard him talking about it. And in early 2018, I ventured onto the stage and had my first acting role with all four of my then fiance's children. What a cool experience. Wow. Listening to Dave motivated me to reach out to local community theater that uses an orchestra for their musicians to see if they might have a need of a percussionist drummer. To my surprise, they did. Not only did I get to play drums in their production of Newsies, two of my kids and I also won onstage roles as well. I have not played in an orchestra environment in over 30 years. Dave was so amazingly cool when I reached out to him personally about some challenges I had. He provided superb support, advice, and encouragement that immediately and directly impacted my ability to not only play, but play well. The whole experience opened up some great networking opportunities with some amazing musicians. Most importantly, I made memories with my children that we will carry with us forever. It was also the most rewarding musical experience I've ever been a part of. None of this could have been possible without your podcast and your story. So I want to extend a sincere and heartfelt thank you to both of you and to Dave. Thank you so much for exposing me to this very rewarding musical path that I did not think to get involved with, if not for you. Yours in music, always be performing. Kevin Cooper. Thanks, Kevin. Oh, shucks is like, you know, the, the, <laughs> like that's the reaction, right? Like, but but it, it that's I mean, I, that's awesome, right? I, I, I'm not actually speechless because that would that would take quite a bit, um, as listeners know. But uh, <laughs> but that's uh, y- you know, that's that's amazing to me. It is like the best outcome that I could think of from sitting down to do this show every week. It like if what we do can like teach something or help someone or especially inspire someone like that's freaking amazing. So that's cool. Kevin, thank you for being, for, for being a part of that. Like that it, it's a two way street, right? This doesn't just happen with Paul and, and, and me sitting here and doing this every week. It takes all of us, right? We're a community, we're a collective and, and it's like this energy that goes in both directions. It's freaking awesome. So what a great way to start a Monday. Thank you there so you much. Go, brother. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
So I'll tell you, I had a weird one this week. Um, half of my band is out really sick. So I got one guy who's a walking pneumonia, one guy with a respiratory, another kind of respiratory infection, Ooh. and one guy who has decided to go audition for uh, master's programs at some music schools around the country. So I, I've got three guys who are out for a club date this week, two of them because they couldn't sure. breathe. Right. And, uh, you know, subs in my horn section, I deal with, you know, occasionally subs in the rhythm section very 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 seldomly yeah we, we spent six months talking about a particular sub that was coming in for your rhythm section once that's so, right yeah. exactly yeah but this one we had to sub nick and nick sings half the show and so it was an interesting thing and we had to do this once about six months ago and that's the only two times in 15 years he's been in the band that i've had to sub him and uh the first time we did it it was um it was an interesting experience and, and a lesson that, you know, your band is a collection of psyches that depends on hearing certain things and reacting certain ways. And although the show was fine, it was great. It was tentative. It was like, oh, you know, it's just going to be one of those nights. Let's just get through this. And it was a little uh, frustrating to me to kind of get people's attention for that gig six months ago. So going into this one, I called the troops together 15 minutes before we went on stage and we we're playing a club that we've really earned an audience at, you know, we're playing there for many years. People, you know, pay a pretty good fee to get in. They go out of their way to come see us in this area. And it's an area we only get to about six times a year. And so I got the guys together and I was like, listen, this is, this is important. This is no leaning back and just saying, well, let's just survive this. This isn't surviving. You got to go out and you got to grab it and you got to play with all your passion. And you got we got to fill that space where, you know, our, our one guy would be with something. It's not going to be keyboards tonight, but it's going to be passion. It's going to be um, energy. It's going to be uh, precision and focus and, you know, picking everybody up. And we had a really, really, really good gig. It was really it, it's different. You know, that thing that you're used to hearing isn't, isn't there. there. So, right. you know, so one, one of the harmonies isn't there, you know, keyboard parts isn't, aren't there. And sometimes are replaced by guitar parts and sometimes just aren't replaced. Right. Yep. And, um, it was a good lesson that, that, uh, the fundamentals of things we all know, play hard, you know, play good, sing with passion, you know, be tight, you know, be polished. It really just, um, there were some places where it was noticeable, but you just get through it. And it was noticeable to us, but not to you. The crowd. Yeah, that's but that's the that's the worst part is that it's noticeable to you and and to your point and, and to your speech to the band before the gig. Like those are the things that you have to get past in order for it to be an entertaining show. And so that the crowd doesn't notice that these things are missing or if they do notice they it doesn't ruin the experience for them if the, you know if it's somebody that comes see you all the time of course they know oh nick's not here okay well look did the band deliver you know like you still have the opportunity to go out and deliver and i remember our first gig without aaron and we have basically we've done a few of them we've decided that at least calling it fling no like that's not um you know that's not something we want to do uh but you know we did a few of them and I, you know i remember going into that first one mostly I was worried about vocals because, you know, he sings a lot of the show, you know, he is by far the best singer in the band and it, you know, he and I lock in on harmony. Like there's so many things that are just automatic that he takes care of uh, vocally. 
And I, I, so I was really worried about that. Obviously I built, had to build the set list, you know, so that that wasn't an issue. And, sure. uh, but you know, you get into the gig and it's like, Oh, it's not just the vocals that are missing here. Right. It's lots of things. And you can't play along with the song that you wish you were hearing. Right. You have to play the song that you're playing. You're not playing. Along I think you have to not overthink it though. Right. I think you actually you just have, have to, to say play. That. Yeah, you just have to play. And, That's and it. you know, it was interesting because it took us about three songs in. Um, the first song was down to the nightclub, you know, because I wanted to get the horns out there and yep. you just kind of like, you know, yep. the horns are the emphasis when when it, something's going to change. It's still the differentiator. And it was fine. And then the next song was uh, Unchain My Heart, Joe Cocker song. And, uh, you know, again, without piano or, or organ you know we filled the space with guitars and and it was good and a couple people on the dance floor so you didn't, by the third you, song, you didn't have a sub you just had no one right yeah, fill that no role. sub okay no, no sub, one singing yeah. those parts i mean you didn't bring in someone extra is what i'm asking yeah didn't bring in someone okay. extra so you, you were know, a Nick, nine uh, piece yeah yeah okay. we're a nine piece yeah. simon and uh simon and steve my bass player who sing quite a bit you know they did a good job trying to wherever they could fill spaces but again by the third song actually the dance floor was full and it was just a night. And, you know, you, you get out of your head when that happens, which yes. is good. And then yes. we just played and it was good. And, you know, some stuff, I, I can't even, looking back, I was conscious of some stuff like, you know, um, a couple of the Motown tunes we do, you know, that sounded a little bit empty, a little bit empty without, yep. a, you know, keyboard there. But, you know, it, it but was only because guys. you're used to it, right? Yeah. I mean, at some level, only because you're used to it. Yeah. It's it's also a learning experience, right? I always find if we do a rehearsal without one of our guitar players or whatever, there was a rehearsal recently where Mike wasn't there and he plays most of the leads. But, you know, he also plays some rhythm along. And there was like it was like, oh, wait a minute. Like I'm hearing different things in this song now. Wait a minute. We can tighten some stuff up. So it, it like there is a benefit, you know, again, looking at the glass half full of stripping out one instrument and sometimes we do that, like with drums, we'll sit and just have a vocal rehearsal with guitars. And, you know, you start to pick the just just like that's a valuable thing, even though you wouldn't probably wouldn't sit on stage and just like sing harmonies. You know, um, you you know, you wouldn't do a gig without drums uh, unless it was an acoustic gig, in which case that that's exactly what it would be. But, you know, you 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 hear different things the the, the wash that happens when you are in a rock band can mask some of that stuff and it's fine, yes. but, but, you know, being able to have a little bit of extra space there, you hear stuff and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. We could, we can tweak that. Like there's yeah. a, there's a minor little thing that could be better, you know, that kind of thing. So it, well, it, it actually can be got to the point. Yeah. It is very valuable. It's valuable for you to, to see your band through a different optic and That's find, it. discover exactly. new, yeah. new, both places where you're overplaying and places where you're underplaying or places where you can do something different. You get used to playing songs and, you know, you tend to go to muscle memory. Yep. These things that shake up that perspective are really, really helpful. And I, I was going to say to the point where uh, we actually threw in superstition, which is actually a yeah, tune no keyboard sings. song. Yeah, right. Sing, right. So Simon played the riff instead of on a, on that harpsichord, harpsichord patch. Clavinet, you know, Simon, that's okay. Clav, yep. Yeah, uh, Simon played it and uh, and sang it. Uh, you know, I just kind of funked the ninth chords and, you know, just kind of kept it going. And, uh, and uh, or minor seventh chords in that case. And, uh, and then the horns, you know, just punch it up. 
and the dance floor was full and nobody yeah. was the wiser. It was just the vibe for the Su- night. You superstition know, works night. no matter what. I, like True. I have found like that song. Well, and you know, that song was uh, so a little departure here. I, I didn't quite realize the story behind that song until the last couple of months. So um, Jeff Beck, when Stevie was doing talking book, pretty sure about this. Uh, he was, you know, the point was he was going to play most of the instruments, but he brought in different guitar players to do the solos on these tunes. And uh, with, with Jeff Beck, his deal with Jeff was you come in, you do the solo. I'll write you a song and you can have that on your uh, Beck Apache. Oh, why can't I think of the, the, there was a, that trio that he put together and I'm going to kick myself. But anyway, so it was going to be a song for that. And while they were in the studio, Jeff Beck sits down and starts playing this relatively simple little groove on the drums. And Stevie grabs his clav and starts riffing along with it. And according to Jeff Beck, basically on the spot, Stevie just improvised that Mm. superstition groove, right? And basically came together with like most of the lyrics or at least a structure. He said it was quite fascinating to watch, like sitting there just playing the drums like, holy crap, this guy's just like this pours out of this dude. And uh, and they recorded it. Now, it, the version on Talking Book had Stevie go back and Stevie played the drums on on that and the recording that we hear. But originally it started as just this jam between Jeff and, and Stevie. And when they finished it uh, or when they finished messing with it for that day or whatever, Stevie said to Jeff, this should be your tune. You know, this is like this is the tune. Like, like what better song for me to give you than one that we sort of cooked up together, you know. And so that was how it was. Until Barry Gordy heard it and said, whoa, 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 no, 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 Stevie, this you can't let him release this first. This is your song. This song's going to make you huge. And of course, you know, by proxy, me, a lot of money. So uh, so well, because this is Barry Gordy. I'm pretty sure it's Barry Gordy. Yeah, right. But, you know, and uh, and so and then there were some delays with that trio's album. Beck Bogart Apache. I knew it would come to me. And uh, and so it did get released on that album, but that was a very much secondary release of the tune. The, the initial release was was on, you know, Talking Book. And obviously, uh, I, I'm sure it went to number one. And it is Stevie's, you know, most popular best hit that he's ever had. And he's had quite a few, but Superstition mm-hmm. is far and away above him. So so that song was actually, even though it was written that way, it was intended to be a guitar song. Uh, when it, you know, when it was first released and, and of course they, they did a cool version of that with the, the harmonies and stuff that Bogart and Apache sang together. It's worth listening to. I'll put a link to, there's probably a YouTube yeah, video of it. I'm going to have to go back and see that one. Yeah. But you know, like, and then of course, Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, even though he had, uh, was it Reese Winans in the band, right? Playing keys. I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan made that his own by making it a guitar song too. So to, to your point, and thank you for the tangent, uh, or affording me the tangent, but, uh, you, you know, that, that song can work as a guitar tune for sure. Yeah. But, but actually what it, my point of all this was, we kind of got to the point where we're working. It, the band is working in this format. Yes. Everything's going to yeah, be good. Yeah, you trust each other. It, it's going to, you're going to make it to the end of the gig and not just survive. You can be successful. Grab the horse by the reins yeah. and whatever. And it was, yeah. it was a successful night. It was, you know, rewarding that the, and the guys reacted well to what I asked for them, which is like, you know, take whatever you're doing up a step. Do not lay back for one moment. Do not just look at this as a lost gig that we're just going to get through, you know, make this work because these people have expected this of us they pay to see us and they travel to see us and they go out of their way and mark their calendars to see us and it was really a very rewarding thing and the and the lessons again like you share 
the nuances that you hear differently and the opportunities to learn and fix parts and enhance parts. And, you know, also 10 piece band, I got to say, you know, sometimes just space is a beautiful thing. And so it was just, you know, some things were, were, were refreshingly, different you know i'm not gonna say better i'm just gonna no. say refreshingly different refresh I, I like that that's the right term you know yeah i mean i back to when you know we had that recent rehearsal without mike and he came back and it was like so we learned some things and he's like oh no it's like no 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 <laughs> man like it's, it's, trust us learning good yeah. learning good yeah you, you we want you here no that there's no discussion about that you know but uh yeah you know like it, it is good to to strip things apart and, and it is yeah 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 i it it Made me think a little bit about uh, repertoire. You know, we, we've talked about repertoire and we've kind of approached it from a bunch of different angles. Let me ask you a question. Pick one of your bands in your mind. Don't tell me which one. Okay. Got one? Yep. How much of your repertoire on any given night is A material? How much of your repertoire on any given night is B material? And how much of your repertoire on any given night is C material in that band? So I intentionally didn't choose Fling because I had been talking about, about Fling. Of course, I didn't know what question you were going to ask. So I chose Uptown Celebration. And I would say 95% is A material wow. and 5% is B material. But that's what that band is organized to do, right? It's all the hits. That's it. It is a party band. There's oh, wait no- a second. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me dissect that a little bit. Okay. N- not necessarily what the song is, mm. but how well the band plays it and how, like, like take, take your best song Got and call it. that an A. How much of what that band does? Like, again, you can pick the hits. That's yes. that's one way to answer the question. But, you know, sometimes the hits, you play them and they work because they're hits. But you Only know. because they're hits, right? <laughs> right. So, so now answer it that way. Oh, it's probably uh, that now it's interesting because it, it, I, if I, I'm going to answer the question for Fling the way that I answered it for Uptown originally, and then I'll answer both bands your way. So Fling, I would have said. It's probably 60-40, right? There, there, we have a lot of tunes that are either our originals, which people like, but, you know, somebody new off the street doesn't know them, right? You've got to come see us a couple times to learn those. And, and then we have some vanity tunes, probably more than we should on any given night. So 60-40 for Fling in terms of song selection. Now, right. it's so 95-5, 60-40, Uptown, Fling. Now, in terms of how we play them, Uptown, I would say is uh i'll be kind and say 60 40 it's probably more like 50 50 50 well that band doesn't rehearse a whole lot right and and we're all pros we like but you know 40 is pretty good it it, the 40 percent is pretty it's not like they're bad it's just that they're not all like we have some tunes that we play that we totally kill them and some that honestly we should take into the rehearsal room and strip apart and and be like, okay, what, what about this isn't working? A lot of that band is just the momentum of where they were when, before I joined. Right. And so like, there's some things that just don't work with this lineup. I don't know whether they worked any better with the previous lineup or not. Right. But, but like it, that could stand to be really put under the microscope and like, okay, what's the, what's the problem with the bridge on this tune? Like, why doesn't this quite work? It, those questions have not been answered. Although we have quite a few rehearsals coming up before a few gigs that we have. So they might get answered. Might. Mm. You also but, have to ask the question, does, uh, is the nature of the game that you're always going to have a, a material and B material? Is, you know, is there, I don't know. Cause I would say a whole show of a, of a material. I would say fling is probably 80, 85, a material in terms of how well we deliver what we choose to play. 
Got uh, it. it. You know, because we're well rehearsed. We know each other. We don't even a song that's a vanity song. The only reason a vanity song makes it to the set list is because we play it so well. Right. Mm. And a lot of times those wind up being the hits of the night. It's weird. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not weird. It's you know, you got a band that's that's like on fire on stage. That counts for something in a room, right? Even if it's not a song, you know, by the end of it, you're like, holy crap, that band's killing it up there. Like that actually matters. So, yeah, that's an interesting question, though. How? Okay, so now let me turn it back around on you. How would you answer that? Um, Well, here's the thing. Any individual song you ask me, I think we play pretty well. Sure. There are songs that go over tremendously well that makes me rethink why are, why doesn't everything do that? And that's why I asked the last question. Yeah. Maybe just by the nature of things, you can't maintain that level of energy, you know, in a, in a three hour cover band set. Yeah. There's always going to be times when people go to the bathroom, go to get a drink and, you know, the dance floor. And well, you've got, yeah, you got to give them a break. Yeah. I mean, in most cases, unless you're playing for a crowd well, of people. Take a are, break is the thing. And, they, and the question yeah. is when they take the break, is it a function of this song seems like a good idea to take a break, even if we're playing it pretty well. We, we, I'd say we, we, uh, 80% is performance a level. Yep. Okay. Yep. Fair. 20%. Always could, you know, polish yeah. a, a, a transition or a harmony or something like that. And so there's room, you know, but it's it's a it's a good song to have in your set. But, it, you you know, is it can you aspire to 100 percent a audience reception? And, and or is that really a function of it's one of those nights where people are here to party and nobody's leaving and everything goes over great? You know, or, right. is it is it a function of time and space or is it a function of your material? Well, and there's a third aspect of this, right? There's, I mean, we've talked about the way you play the songs, or at least that's how I'm putting it out there. Um, the and and then the song selection, the list itself. But then there's how, how do you perform as a band, regardless of what song you're playing, right? Right. And and for like Uptown, you know, if I took if I took Uptown set list and gave it to Fling. And we learned those songs as well as Fling will learn any song, right? Which is pretty well. Um, I think we would, we could, I mean, we could actually be quite a great party band, but we would be missing that front person personality that's up there. Mm. You know, in, in Uptown, we've got, we've got two singers, right? Male and female. I mean, they just lock in with each other. They entertain all night long, no matter what. And they're pros, right? Even if something is, even if the band's, you know, train wrecking behind them, it doesn't matter, right? Like it's, it's still fun and everything's good. And, you know, everything, you know, you want to sing, you know, and they give the mic to somebody in the crowd so that now the focus is here and you don't notice that the bass player's amp is on fire or whatever, you know, like whatever, like not that that's happened, but you know, those kinds of like, they're pros at that. So, you know, Fling does not have that um, in terms of a, you know, a dedicated front person personality, which, like you said, for a, a party slash wedding slash function band, you absolutely you cannot. I don't know that you could do it without that. Maybe. I mean, there's probably some exception to the rule. But if you want the easiest path of least resistance, have that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. So I got one more thing to share okay. with you. I had another great experience last week. So one of my regular gigs at one of the bigger wineries down here, I've been doing a solo gig there for about four years. They said, Hey, we want to um, get it more upbeat. So we'd like to have more combos. You know, can you put together a combo? And so they booked me for a bunch of dates and I went to put together a bunch of guys who have that category of, Hey, let's, let's do something together sometimes. So, yep. um, and 
I thought about what material would go over well. Like that's not a cover band dance venue. It's a winery. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a wine bar. People are there to sip wine and socialize. Uh, and so I knew it couldn't be anything too terribly loud. So I needed players who would play, you know, smart with to regards to volume yep. to the room, to the room. Uh, and so we're, we're pioneering the genre of winery rock, which is, you know, kind of stuff. You, the drummer can play on brushes or, or play with bundles. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, rarely do you have to push the volume. I'm on acoustic guitar most other most of the songs. Uh, we got Chris Breen on keyboards, Josh Baker on on bass, uh, um, Jeff Cohen on guitar, and Don Frank on drums. Really good guys, all who I know individually. You know, of, co- of course, know Chris. Yeah. Um, I sent them a list about two months ago. Said, "Here's the songs. Come ready." Um, everybody was cool. Some good email conversations back and forth. What do you got for this section? You know, yeah. is, are we playing it right to this form? You know, that type of thing. Um, we did have a chance to do one run through. I have a gig that's a really loose gig um, that I could just bring some friends to. So we did that on the Monday night before and we ran through everything. And, you know, 70% of the stuff was, it's easy material is one thing. Um, 70% of the stuff came out really good and we were ready to go. 30% was uh less than great um and that number went down to 20 percent after this before the the thursday yeah but it was really fun it was um, nice to make sounds it felt a lot more um creative it felt like we were making music there was so much listening to each other because there was that uncertainty of what everybody really knew right so we did stuff like um against the wind by bob seeger and the innocence by don henley you know just kind of like very melodic things, music to sip wine by. I saw and, um, our uh, listener and friend Scott Canale posted some uh, some videos of of that, and your vocals sounded. It was the best I thought your voice has oh, ever sounded. It well, really. Thank you, dude. It was obvious that you could hear, and you were, you know, like like yeah, it was great. You weren't overdoing it. Like you didn't have to over sing just to you know hear yourself or whatever. Like it was great. Really sounded. You know, it's good. a funny thing that um, my buddy Steve Psychotis said he thinks that acoustic format is actually a much more natural thing for me. And while I don't necessarily feel happy about wearing that suit, <laughs> um, he he may be right. It those things, you know you know, are, are a lot easier than when I have to, you know, bark out rock lyrics all night long. But yes. um, thanks for saying that. It means a lot to me. And it was just really fun. I mean, I picked all the songs. It's really a backing band behind me. So, I'm, right. you know, it's, it's this expression for me of music that I really like to do. We had one or two that didn't quite fit. We did one headlight by the, um, by the uh, wallflowers. That was a little heavy oh, yeah. for this format, but we did, um, my Redneck Friend by Jackson Brown. And that was a nice, you know, combo format to do that. Um, we did a nice version of American Pie with a full band playing. And that was fun. People really enjoyed it. Like I said, it, I, I conceive this because there's so much winery work around here. No, you created something that, that's marketable in that area for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's smart. And, and that's kind of a cool thing. And, you know, you know me, if everybody's going left, I tend to at least think about going right, if not insist on going right. And now there's a there's a flux of individuals and duos that are in the market, you know, competing for stuff. Well, I did that for the last three years and, you know, had good fortune to work quite a bit, but if everybody's going to go do that, I'm going to cut back on the amount of that stuff that I do and then, you know, find a different way to express my music. So coming to see me is always going to be a different thing than coming to see other people. So yeah, being a big fish in a smaller pond is easier. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd, seriously, you know, I, I do, I mean, I'd been doing acoustic gigs for years with, you know, with both the, the acoustic fling, which we called Hamnesiac and then, um, monkey fist. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, just the normal kind of, you know, take the acoustic form and, and go do it. And then when I started playing with Amanda, you know, we did some of that and then she started being like, just bring your drums to this gig, you know, and some gigs, it would just be me on drum set. And her on acoustic guitar yeah. and some, it would be, you know, adding a bass player to that or whatever. And it was different for sure. But you know what? It worked really well. I mean, it gets to your point. You've got to be sensitive about volume and all of that, it, you know, playing either with, like you said, brushes or bundle sticks, or even I find um, lighter weight real sticks can actually be quieter than bundles. Um, but yeah. Just, but you know, again, whatever it takes doing something that fits so that you don't have like, you know, John Bonham playing, you know, cashmere along with, you know, somebody trying to, you know, finger pick something on the guitar. It just, you know, that would be, that would actually would be different. I don't think it would go over well in these places, but certainly would, you know, people would notice, but um, yeah, no, it, it, it works. And you know, to, to your point, you were, you were saying that at you know that first gig where everybody of a pickup band in this in this sense where you're on stage and really like that's the first time that you're playing these songs together and listening to each other there's there's the potential for like the great potential for true magic there even if it's not as good as you thought it was, right? You know, it's still, I mean, it's still going to be good. Like, you, you know, you have a, like you said, you got a bunch of pros on stage. It's fine. But that magic of making, of everybody being aware. And, and that is something I try to recreate as often as I can, even in scenarios where it's, you know, you're just doing the grind and it's like, oh yeah, it's another gig. Um, cre doing something that makes it so that everybody has to listen to each other. I've talked about where, you know, I don't like to have a rehearsal the week of a, of a gig if it's avoidable for that. But if I do, I'll put the first three songs on the set list to be things that we didn't rehearse that week. You know, things so that, fresh. Things that we know is yeah. a little edge. And just to get everybody on stage and settled with the, the foundation of we have to listen to each other. Like we're like that first song is like we're a little bit panicked here. Not panicked, but, you know, like we can't just go out and phone this in because I'm not exactly sure. Like, I think I remember how this goes or, you know, whatever it is, something you can do to just put yourself on that on the tip of the edge there. And then by the time you get, you know, I found two or three songs in like the foundation is now set and, and you can go and, and play the stuff that's like, you know, putting on an old pair of shoes or whatever. And it's just yeah. comfortable, but yeah, there's something quite magical. I, you know, as I think back about, uh, you know, a lot of the gigs I've played, some of the most memorable ones are the one-offs where it's like, I met this guy and we went and, you know, the band went into the men's room and talked through what the set was going to be <laughs> and then go out on stage for a crowd of like 500 people or something and, you know, play, go play these tunes. And it's like, you know, when it works, but everybody's like looking at each other and communicating, you know, over communicating, but that interaction that translates. They see that like the crowd that's watching. They like that, you know, that sure. like it shows that you're not just out there going through the motions, you know, and that's cool. And that maybe yeah. it communicates a little bit of that danger in the right way, too. I don't know. I, I think uh, that's that it's, it's it's really making music in real time as opposed to just playing. And, and not that just yeah. playing music is a bad thing. So, you know, you work hard to get your band rehearsed and then 
you, you are performing, it's kind of a muscle memory exercise. You know, right. yeah, you, you get to express when it's your time to shine, take your solo, whatever it is. That's a different set of skills. Um, and, and again, you know, the kids in the jazz world, of course, you know, do this a lot. That's, that's kind of the essence of it is, you know, these, these open mics and these jam nights and these jazz nights, you know, where you sit in and you have to do a combination of be a team player and wait your turn and then stand out when it's time to wait your turn. That's kind of what this was like. Again, I, I told the guys, I'm not expecting note for note representations, but we have to agree on form and key. You know, yeah. we have to, you know, <laughs> those two things we should agree on yeah. and then you know, play music, how you hear it is what I told them. I, you know, the goal is not to recreate those things. And I certainly didn't sing them in the phrasing of all those people. It was really, you know, an effort to try and um, reinterpret some of these songs. And again, I love them because all the songs are, you know, I get to pick all of them sure. yeah. and, uh, and it's good guys. There's a really interesting line in the beginning of that Springsteen um, on Broadway thing, when he's talking about how, how he developed his magic. And he said, one of the, one of the, the aces that he held was um, that he'd been playing with a group of people who knew his style. Yeah. And that always was interesting to me, you know, just this concept that, you know, in the give and take if you want to be a front man or if you want to put your name on the band, you know, what is your style is a really important question to ask. But then the question is, are the musicians that you're with helping you to express your vision? I picked guys that I knew were good guys, knew were good players, knew were good teammates uh, and knew would give me the route. They would set a nice foundation, yeah. do what they needed to do. If I really cared really strongly about a, a you know, a feel on a certain drum passage or a, a guitar. So I, you know, I would speak up, but I, you know, I, I, that wasn't what this was about, but this concept of playing with people who truly get the idea of supporting the song and supporting the singer. That's a very different thing than just playing the song. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and when you're in an original band, like that's 10 times as important. I bet. Right. Because you, you know, like you've got it, it as the songwriter, you at some level and, and different songwriters, even at, you know, for different songs will, will choose where this is. But at some level you're handing what you've created to someone else, you know, either to interpret or to add something to, right. That comes right. out of their brain. And, and you know, that, that, that there's a collaboration there that you have to trust them. Now, you know, sometimes that trust comes from, I want this to be different. I want, you know, and so you intentionally bring somebody in that doesn't share your background, right? And, you know, and they're going to show you something you never expected. But by and large, you know, I would say the the most success tends to come from people that understand the, the you know, what the songwriter, you know, the chief songwriter, at least, or the only songwriter is you know, trying to accomplish with this and, and, and that can shortcut things, right. You, you know, into, Oh yeah. Okay, great. Right. Yep. That, that's the groove I was hoping you would play or that riff. That's great. That solo really captured the feel. Yep. That's what you want. Yeah. 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 I, I was thinking about one, one time this is years ago when the house rockers were um, before Joe joined the band, when we were auditioning drummers and I was amazed. And I don't know if this is a drummer thing, but I think it, it is a, a largely a drummer thing. How many drummers came in and wanted to show me that they were John Bonham? No real understanding of, you know, what's different about playing soul man. They really wanted to, you know, this is the, you haven't seen my fastball yet. Right. You know, yeah. It was really like, like, you know, check me out. And uh, you realize that the guys who get those gigs of get calls 
are the guys who have big ears, understand the concept of supporting the song and supporting the singer and, uh, you know, and play their instrument. You know, they're in their box when they need to be in their box. And when they're given permission to get out of the box, they, they do their thing and they shine that, you know, we've had a lot of conversations here about what's a pro that might be one of the better definitions about what's a pro. I, I was just going to say, this is uh, not to toot my own horn, but this is the re- ex- exactly what you described is the reason that I have gotten the gig at every audition I've gone on except one. Uh, and I'm, I'm just assuming I failed that audition because they never called me back for this U2 tribute band like 20 years ago or something. But, uh, <laughs> it, you know, but um, but like that mentality, I think, is the is is like the key to that. To your point, it's it you can't unless someone says I'm hiring you to be like a flashy drummer, like I need a, a Neil Peart or a Carter Beaufort for my band, you know, like if that's the gig. OK, well, then go and. And go, go be flashy, you know, like that's what they just told you they wanted. For sure. But most of the time, uh, don't read that between the lines, you know, in the, that's in a the big request. Assumption. Yeah. That's a big assumption. <laughs> yeah. But that thing about being in the box and you're happy to be in the box, you find joy and you find creativity when you have to be in the box. You do. Right? Yeah. But that that's that's what a leader would be looking for. Right. Not a guy who just can't wait to get out of the box. I mean, you right. know, I'm, there are rare opportunities where that guy is an asset to your team. He's so excited to be there and he just can't wait to share what he has to share. I could get that there's an aspect of that that could be incredibly valuable. But in general, you know, are there guys who can find, especially in covers, yeah. Can you find the joy and beauty in the in the straight beat that you have to provide, in the straight groove you have to provide, in the straight rhythm you have to provide? Can you actually disappear into that and find the essence of what made that song magic enough to make it into your into your leader's you know repertoire to begin with? I think that there's a lot of that. And then, you know, you watch these guys who are so good and then they effortless, effortlessly go beyond the box into their moment and then effortlessly go back into the box and support the team again. Those are the guys that are magic. You know, those are the guys that are Steve Gadd, right? Like if, if you're, if you're a player, I was going to say if you're a drummer, but really I think the lessons that he teaches or that he embodies are, are applicable to everyone because it's exactly what you just described. Like understand your job, but have the chops to really play so that when that moment comes, you can be like, oh, whoa, OK, that's that guy. Whoa. You know, like like when Paul Simon shows you late in the evening and you're like, oh, cool. What about this Mozambique groove that can sort of live behind that that weird guitar riff? And, right. you know, like that's that like most people that listen to that tune don't understand that that drum part is not easy to play, like especially with the fluidity that that dude did it. But the, that's the point is he's not trying to show you how amazing this is. He is serving the song. And Absolutely. yeah, he's probably entertaining himself. You know, so another drummer that does this is uh, is uh, uh, Steve Smith with Journey. I was going to say Steve mm-hmm. Perry. I don't know why. Uh, his job in that band, as far as he saw it, was to play the most complex drum part he could play without anyone else in the band noticing that he was playing a complex drum part. (laughs) Because anytime he did, Neil Sean would turn around and be like, dude, we go play in stadiums. Like, you know, you have to keep it simple, stupid. And, you know, we've talked about this particular part on the show before, but if you listen to Don't Stop Believing, it's four on the floor. Like once the drums come in, which, you know, four kick drums, uh, you know, on every beat, the rest of that part is so complex, it'll make your head spin trying to figure out which goes where. But 
most people don't notice that you sure yeah. you hear that every you hear the you know the uh, accented offbeat on the bell of the ride symbol here and there that's sort of a signature thing but it ain't in the same place every time i'll tell you that and steve smith knows exactly where it's supposed to be and it's really hard and he plays it with left hand on the hi-hat like he made that part so stupidly difficult and it does not need to be right. Like you could just play like a straight, Steve Smith, but he's Steve Smith. You could play a straight up drum groove underneath that. And literally no which one would most notice. People do. Right. Which, which most, most people, people do. do. <laughs> most drummers I know do. And yeah. then I, I try and talk to them. I'm like, do you know the real part? They're like, what do you mean? That's the part. I'm like, well, <laughs> no, no. Like maybe uh, your right foot. Yes. That's the part. The rest of it. Mm, no. But as, to your point, right. It works. So there's got to be an ISO of that part out there somewhere right oh yeah i i've spent days like you know just dedicated to to figuring that part out it's great no no i'm saying there's i think somewhere on the internet there's got to be just the drum track oh that's, that's what i'm released. saying yeah no people have people have dissected the crap out of it it's great oh, that's cool. yeah no that that's where i learned how to play it the right way it was like okay i know that there's something special about this let me <laughs> dig in and and yeah i found him so you know, a little aside here, speaking about Journey, um, Neil Sean, the guitarist for Journey, has been doing a series of shows called Neil Sean's Time Machine, which mm-hmm. is going back with Greg Raleigh and doing original Journey stuff, like first three albums. I think I think uh, Perry joined on some background vocals on the third album, okay. if I remember. It might be the fourth album when he joined. I think that, No, actually, the first three, I think, you know, Journey, uh, Looking to the Future, and um, the one with the green cover. Um uh, we're original. And if, if anyone out there has never listened to that stuff, it is mind blowing. It's mid seventies. It is, it is a place where hard rock and prog rock kind of crossover. Sean is of course, yeah. world-class. I mean, you, you it, listen to that stuff and you'll understand why Jan Hammers had so many good things yeah. to say about Neil when he was on, uh, you know, why he was playing us. lead guitar for Santana at, at such a young age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, go listen to Kohotek, look into the future. You know, it just, it's fantastic stuff. And um, yeah, it's mind blowing stuff. Yeah. And that's before they became kind of a radio friendly band, you know, back in the mid seventies. Yeah. Although, you know, Perry joined, they wrote lights together and suddenly, you know, yeah. everything changed. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's a great serendipitous story. Yep. But I, you know, uh, one of the guys from journey went to the high school that I went to. And so they were, they were kind of local legends yeah. here in the Bay area. Very much a fixture, you know, on the club and the, and the college circuit around here. And, um, you know, you know, even before that, you know, they were, they were, like I said, local legends that everyone was just waiting for them to break. And then, you know, they got Perry and they broke and, you know, they're a great story and certainly incredibly memorable band. But those first three albums are mind blowing to yeah, me. I mean, fantastic stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Ainsley Dunbar was a drummer on them. Yep. Right. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. And he, he's got Dean Castronovo playing in the Time Machine tour. Then right. Dean not only can play, but can sing. So yeah, he's like, covering the He's covering yeah, those parts. Yeah, for sure. Hey, we got a question from Bill. I, I always like to have at least one listener question in the show. So I'm going to I'm going to jump to this and maybe I'll have a moment to talk about. Uh, maybe this will lead us into some stuff that I've been prepping for Madhouse this week. But Bill writes, he says, you've mentioned several times that you use an iPad on stage with the drums. What size iPad do you use? And do you have an opinion about whether size makes a difference for reading on stage? And do you have it in an especially protective case? So, yeah, good questions. I have used all different sized iPads on stage uh, to read music. I've used a 10 and a half inch iPad Pro 
uh, a 9.7 inch, like the normal iPad size, the, the original iPad size, the OG iPad, and then uh, also an iPad mini, which is a 7.9. I have not used the the 12 point uh, whatever, uh, but I've seen lots of keyboard players use them. I find that for drum music, if I'm even like, and I'm talking about like a honest to goodness, like sheet music for drums, I can actually do just fine with the iPad mini for that. But when I have to read like for the, 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 the rare shows where I've had to do like keyboard parts or whatever, that is not big enough for me. And I don't mm-hmm. think I certainly I'm not a keyboard player. So like it would stand to reason that I'm not going to be able to just look and see the patterns that I know exist, you know, within the lines. Um, but uh, I, I've talked to other keyboard players and other instrumentalists that say, oh, no, 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 no. Anything sh- smaller than like the 12 inch, you know, iPad Pro is probably too small. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I find that that all the sizes work. Certainly if I'm just reading you know, rock lead sheets or whatever, even if I have to put notes on them or whatever, like I do for a madhouse, uh, the, the iPad mini on stage is generally fine. I do have it in a protective case. I'm a big fan of specs cases. My family, um, I, I, well, actually I've dropped my iPhone once. My, my family tends to drop their phones a lot, including one. <laughs> what recently my wife dropped one at a hockey game, like threw the bleachers down like two stories and it landed on its face. And I, go, I, I went underneath and saw it and I was like, okay, well, here we go. And I picked it up and it was fine. You know, cause spec makes their cases so that they've got a little ridge on them and stuff. My, my daughter dropped one off a roller coaster years ago. Uh, again, like no problem. So, uh, so, yes, I keep my my stage iPads in spec cases and I use to mount them. I use the um, there's this company called Stage Nin- Ninja that yeah. that makes uh, what what they call their um, it's it's a it's a tablet mount. Uh, it it kind of clamps onto I clamp it onto one of my um, one of my drum, you know, stands or whatever. And uh, and man, it works so well. It, it, the the, I guess they call it the scorpion clamps or the scorpion mount or something, but you can just position this thing wherever you want and it stays there. Like it, you don't have to lock it in. It just clamps and stays and, uh, and works really, really well. I'll put a link to both of these in the, uh, yeah, the, in the show. The scorpion notes. thing has uh, like a, a retractable arm, you know, movable arm. So you can it's actually a, move it around. Yeah. An adjustable arm. And then, yeah. yeah. It looks cool. Yeah. It's fantastic. So, yeah. So a couple of things about this. One is the, the obvious question. Do you care if people see your your pad? Right. Um, so if you're a drummer, you can probably hide it, you know, back, you know, closer to you by your drum set. If you're a guitar player and it's going to be on your mic stand, you know, I'll tell you, Simon uses the big one until he's you know, fully ready. And, you know, he puts it down about knee level, Yeah, but he uses an iPad pro, uh, but it's big. You can see it. It's in the pictures. The light coming off of it, you know, is, is something to think about. It's, it's very present. Um, when I do solo acoustic gigs, I use a small one that clamps to my mic stand, uh, 9.7. And, um, you know, I, I have it there mostly, when I'm trying out new material or because there's a bunch of stuff on there in case I get requests. Sure. Um, but I, I will tell you this pads are a mixed bag of things. You tend to get fixed on your pad when you have a pad, it takes you a little bit away from being in the moment and performing. And that's something that I'm, even if you know the words and further, if you 
There's something about your brain chemistry that once it knows it has a cheat available to it, mm. it makes it 10 times harder. It's hard to, not to use the crutch when it's in your hand. Exactly. Yeah. So there's that. Um, but uh, like our keyboard player has, he has a, you know, a double level of keyboards and he puts a little arm and he puts it kind of, you know, to the left to him, which is, you know, kind of the side stage. Uh, yep. um, and it's pretty innocuous and it's pretty small. And it's just like for a cheat of a word here or there. And so the small one works well for that. For full on sheet music, I think you'd be hard pressed. All my horns use um, a 9.7. They seem to be able to read down I can sheet see that. music on that. Yeah, I could, I could see it for horns where you're reading, where there's one note at a time in the staff. It was chords on the piano right. that I found. And, and actually, the, the 9.7, I was okay. That was the biggest iPad at the time, the last time I had to do that. And that was fine. But uh, for drum music, I, again, I'm used to reading those patterns. So I can, I can sort of intuit them, even if they're compressed into a small little page. Um, but you know, I probably wouldn't be reading drum sheet music at a rock gig, it, you know, for a theater gig, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but yes, most of the time, not only do you have sheet music, but it's completely expected that you would be reading it and everyone else is, you know, reading sheet music too. So it's just not a weird thing. When we did Hedwig, um, that actually the instruction was memorize the songs. And that was part of where I said, well, yeah, I don't have time in December to do this. When they brought me back in and, and I wound up actually doing the gig, they're like, look, you can hide your iPad on stage, like do whatever you want. You're going to be fine. By the end of that run, I basically had it memorized anyway. But to your point, like really difficult not to look at it. <laughs> I know it's right there. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, you know, so, and like for these madhouse gigs where it's this one-off thing, there's no way we would make it through it if the the band didn't have everything to read. You, mm -hmm. you know, I, I sometimes feel bad because all the singers, of course, are memorizing all their lyrics, but they are singing, you know, a few songs a night, whereas the band's playing every song and they have the opportunity right before they go on stage to kind of look at things and be like, OK, got it. And then they go out and sing it, you know, um, whereas we don't we don't quite have that. Uh, it's interesting. One of the one of the tunes in this madhouse is uh, Come Sail Away, the sticks tune. And, you know, we only play sections of songs. And I was prepping it this morning. We have our first rehearsal tomorrow and then the gigs Wednesday. And uh, and it was like, oh, that's right. This tune, it has like that whole drum fill thing that kind of goes, you know, I guess out of the second. I forget what verse it is because we've chopped it all up or they've chopped it all up. And, uh, but, it, but like, that's in it. And it's like, oh crap. Like I can't memorize this. And this is what I love about the internet. I searched for come sail away drum sheet music <laughs> and within, Done. within five seconds, I had it up and was playing along with it. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And once I see it, it's like, great, but I guarantee you, I'm going to be reading that on, uh, uh, you know, on Wednesday night when we play it, I, you know, I mean, I know it, right. I've heard the song a million times. I probably, you know, faked my way through it a few times. The biggest part about that sheet music is where the hits are on the symbols. Like it's different every turnaround. And, and so seeing it's on the one and the, uh, and then the three, okay, great. That's this one. The next one, it's on just the one, the three and the four. Okay, great. You know, and I can like make up some fills in between those or whatever. Um, but, but you know, those kinds of things are super helpful, um, to be able to have, especially in those moments when I joined Uptown, um, most of the people in Uptown use sheet music or charts on stage, not sheet music. 
And the one thing that I wound up using it for is the, um, the, I think it's the keyboard solo in the middle of Van Halen's jump. That mm. drum part is so angular and weird. Like I still What's have, angular mean? um, it doesn't follow a, uh, a, you know, like there's no groove to it. It's just got like all these hits that sort of just come out of nowhere. And, uh, and go listen to it at some point. It's like, I don't know, it's it's eight bars, maybe 16 bars, but it's just like kind of random. It's just random. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, OK, I'm not going to get this right, you know, <laughs> unless I just read it. So on my charts, I just made charts for that band like I do any band that I'm like filling in for or whatever. And, and it was like, OK, you know, here's this tune, you know, Al Green's uh, Let's Stay Together or whatever. OK, you know, and it's got like 100 BPM. Uh, we're all in at the beginning. OK, great. That's all I need to know for that song. Right. And on the jump tune, it's like, OK, yep, keys start. And then I just chopped out that one section of the of the the drum chart and just pasted it right in on that page. And it's like, OK, great that I've got it when the when the keyboard solo. I know the rest of the tune. I know the form when the keyboard solo comes. I just look down sort of casually. It's great if you're wearing glasses because you can look down, but the crowd still thinks you're looking out and, uh, <laughs> and just play it and read it. And then it's like, OK, good. Right. The rest of the tune's fine. And that actually is probably a good way to. And now that I say it is a good way to keep yourself from being reliant on those cheat sheets is only having the sections that give you trouble mm. so that, right. So that you like for the rest of jump, I have no Done chart. There. It says jump yeah. at the top of the page. And then there's this, whatever it is, 10 bars. That's really bars. smart. Actually, just, you know, instead of having all the lyrics, just yeah. have the, the keywords you need to get you through a section. Yeah, the first line of, of, smart. of the first line of a verse or whatever, or the first word of a line, like something like that. So that you're like, there's no crutch. So you have nothing to look at. You know, and even then you will still find yourself staring at this page that has nothing helpful at the moment on it. Right. But it, at least then you notice that and you're like, oh, crap, I got to stop looking at the page. Like there's people out there. I should be entertaining, you know, uh, those sorts of things. But, yeah, it's mm -hmm. hard. It's hard not to. I catch myself looking at it all the time with Madhouse. It's awful because I'm the one running like when the band starts tunes. And the only way I know that is by listening to what the actors are saying and where in the script, the song starts. And so I catch myself like literally just staring there at the iPad, reading along with what these people are saying. It's like, Oh no, 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 no. Like just memorize where the part is and don't worry about the rest, you know? Um, but you know, that's just how it goes. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's good having, I, you know, it, it, there, there are moments it, I, it, like anything else. There's a time and a place for the iPad, uh, in my opinion. And a rock gig, you tough. know, it's tough. Time, tough. tough place. Yeah. I, I was watching you know, Learn Fish, your parts. Fish played down in Mexico this weekend. And I watched some of their live videos or whatever. And I've seen this before, but their keyboard player uh, has two iPads sort of strategically placed in amongst his array of keyboards. 99% of the time they have flaps over them because that, if they don't, the lights are going to shine. Even if the screen is off, the lights are going to shine on the screen and, and reflect. But I have seen, you know, clips of videos where you can tell, Oh, his, you know, there's something like he's looking at that. He has lifted up the flap. Maybe it was a tune that, you know, had come up earlier in the day that somebody wanted to play. He needed, you know, some cheat for that particular song. And so, okay, there it is. Great. And then when the song's over, it's closed back up and, and, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe that's the other way to do it is leave the iPad off 
Um, You know, I I even find it's just like it's our culture, right? We're so drawn to these screens. Even if I all I have on the iPad is the mixer, uh, I will catch myself like just staring at the, you know, the lights on the little mixer display. Like, oh, yeah, things are working. It's like, wait, why am I looking at this? There's people there, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that thing posted a little bit of a tangent that uh, Guy Kawasaki posted that in 20 years, people are going to look back at the concept of giving a 13 year old a a cell phone. This similar, similar to them giving them a a cigarette right now. Like it's just such a terrible habit forming thing. Why are we doing that? Uh, Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. You know, I, I've I mean, we are we are at the early stages of um, of sort of the the social and cultural impact of of this type of technology where we've got something with us all the time. And I mean, you see it like people, you know, they'll pull out their phone in a restaurant. Some people hate that. Some people don't even notice that it's happening. And and like I, I equate it to this. You know, when like when cars started, we didn't have driver's licenses. You didn't have to register the car. You didn't have to take a test. You just if you could have a car, you could drive the car. That's how it worked. You know, and then a lot of people started getting cars and we started crashing into each other. And at some point we decided to come up with the construct that everyone listening to this episode understands as what you do at a four-way stop, right? Everybody gets there and you, and you know what to do so that 99% of the time, maybe far more than 99% of the time, nobody goes at the same time and just plows into each other. Right. We've, we've sorted this out. That is an advanced concept in, in terms of the timeline of the automobile, right? It took a while to get to that four-way stop point where we all decided collectively, we need to like, we need to have a convention that happens and we all know what's going to happen and it works without any, you know, you don't need a traffic light. You don't need somebody standing in the middle telling you when to go. Everybody can just do it. I don't think we've gotten to the four-way stop point with our smartphones and even mm. our technology yet, right? We're just not, we're getting there. And, you know, the conversations like this are just sort of spontaneously happening. And we're, and we're getting there. Like, we know that it's kind of bad form to pull out your phone in a movie theater. Okay, cool. Like, you know, but people don't know that at a concert. Why is it any different? You know, like, well, it's like we've got people watching a thing and there's not lights on. So your phone really bothers the person behind you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but yeah. this is like we aren't there. The social yet. construct. The social contract hasn't been written it yet. It hasn't been written yet. No, no. Or it's slowly being written and revised like it, every day. It's a little different. It's like, OK, you know, so, yeah, yeah, I, it, I, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but, you know, <laughs> when our kids were getting on the school bus for the first time, it certainly made good sense to us to send them with some sort of a cell phone so that if something happened, they could get in touch with us. Like it would have been crazy not to in, in our minds, you know? So it like the technology's there. I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's hard not to, uh, not to just use it. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I don't know, man. What do you think? Do you think you would you would you if 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 you had to do over right now, would you give your kids phones as early as you did? No. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I heard I heard Steve Jobs doesn't give it didn't give his kids technology for quite a while into their life. I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. He was I mean, he he, you know, he sort of uh, he definitely appreciated that minimalist 
um, mentality. You know, he yeah. didn't want to live in a gated community away from other, you know, he, he right. yeah, 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 yeah. So I can, I can yeah, see and, that. And, yeah. And he would be one to, you know, even though he was the greatest technology salesperson of all time, he would be one to have the context of, you know, intersection of art yeah. and technology, right? Yeah. Humanities and technology. Totally. So, totally. so there is, it is an evolving story. It's evolving for us as musicians as well. And, you know, again, right. part of it is right now, I think if you have a pad in, in a, in a cover band on stage playing for money situation, you're, you're telegraphing that you haven't prepared your material. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It seems more accepted in the acoustic scenario than on, on stage. Like on stage casual rock band. things. Like if you're in the corner of a restaurant, you know, and, and the focus isn't on you, you know, if it's, if you're background music, yeah. it's way more accepted. But if, you know, if you have everybody paying to see you and paying attention to you, if your eyes are glued to your pad instead of, you know, closed and emoting something for your audience or connecting with your audience, I think, you know, you're, you're not giving people the money. There's money, money's worth. Yeah. Every horn player on the planet would probably disagree with you. Like uh, they, like they, and they, I would you, disagree with them. I, I, I'm not, I'm with you. Right. But that it was always weird to me, like, you know, playing in bands with horn players. It's like, wait a minute, why do you guys have charts on stage? Like the rest Dude, of we us can do a whole, you know, the conversations I've had with my horn players over the years and the, and the, and the firm resolute acceptance as gospel that it's different for horn players is just so interesting to me. They really believe that, you know, that they're different than a rhythm section instrument. And, you know, the, you know, it, it is beneficial to all, whether, you know, the thing is, listen, if we're not right on, on our, on our stuff, we don't blend together and, you know, you're going to have even bigger problems or we have to memorize, you know, 10,000 notes for a song where you have to, you know, the same seven chords over and over and again, there, you know, there, there's very well, Tread and developed rationales, <laughs> <laughs> rationalizations, maybe. Yeah, I think it's rationalizations. I like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, we can all rationalize. It's like, but that's what I'm saying is I, I feel like instead of resisting it, we've all sort of become in agreement with it. it. Yeah. 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 It's like, dang it. They opened this door and we went through it with them. Why? <laughs> Why did we let ourselves? Yeah, it doesn't look good to have a band full of iPads on stage. It's, it does not. It does not. Um, I wonder if in 20 years it will look good. You know what I mean? Like, is there? It, well, will I this, wonder if in 20 evolve? years the yeah. pad will be built into the, the, the control surface of a keyboard. If, a, if yeah. a pad will be built into, you know, more things. You know, it's an interesting thing. You know, technology is a function of need and opportunity, right? I mean, right. You know, why a tuner isn't built into every guitar, every guitar is crazy. Well, you know, there's probably kind of some some constructs of, of tension that say, nope, we, you know, guitar, you know, you charge extra if you can sell a tuner with it. The music retailers might not like that. It's an add on sale. So, you know, all those types of things that, you know, the industry that makes tuners is probably like, no, no, we'll take care of the tuners. Yeah, we you guys make it. the instruments. Yeah. But, you know, on the surface, it, it simply makes a lot of sense. But anyway, a good conversation for another yeah. day. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, folks, thanks for listening. This has been uh, another hour plus episode here. Barely, but, you know, there you go. So we're going to have to tighten it up, Paul. We're getting uh, our, our jams are getting, getting loosey goosey. Yeah, here. that's right. We got to we got to we got to find a way. We're always performing, though. Always performing. That's the problem. It's hard to say no. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>